Hello, and welcome to the Judo Way of Life podcast. If you've been with us before, welcome back. And if this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us. Today, I have the honor of talking with Brian Moore. Brian is a seventh degree black belt who has been involved in judo as a competitor and coach since the 1960s. He is head coach at the prestigious Bake Up Judo Club, where he has coached numerous players to multiple European, Commonwealth and World Championships, as well as multiple Olympic Games. He was the Northwest of England area squad coach for 12 years, the Great Britain squad coach for the under 18s team for 15 years, and was also the support coach for the Team GB senior squad for over 10 years. Hello, Brian. Thank you for joining me today. Hello. It will be a pleasure as always. I'd like to start by asking you about how you got started in judo. Um, well, I worked at now. I worked at the coal mine at the time, and the local sports club, the mine provided, put on a demonstration of judo for any of the miners to take the children to for have some free lessons. So I took along my brother, who was I think nine at the time, had the twenty-one, uh, and the lad who was doing the demonstration, a lad called Billy Indle and his wife, the two black belts. There was only two of us turned up on the day, myself and my brother and another miner with his daughter. So Billy invited us both on the mats uh, to have a go self. I didn't know what a character were at the time. I didn't know that he, he just had a fantastic character. Um, so he invited us on, we went on to the mat and just, I don't know, within 10 minutes, I was just loving it. Because at the time we were doing um, Neowaza, and I worked on the coal face, on my knees, shoveling coal seven hours a day. So it was a perfect environment for me to work in. So the groundwork really attracted me. Um, and we had a, good, a really good session with Billy. Uh, unfortunately, the lad, the other, the other, the other parent, the other miner, when Billy stood us up to, um, to have a go at uh, standing, doing a bit, of, a bit of standing work. I broke his ankle. We do an ankle sweep, but we were trying to do judo on two mattresses, I think they were. So that finished him off. And Billy invited me to go to Bake Up Judo Club with him on the Monday. In fact, he came and picked me up. We got his own, um, which I thought good of him, saying that was with all respect. And it, it took off from there, really. I just loved it. Absolutely. From day one, I just loved it. I loved the camaraderie. I liked, I liked the fighting, I liked the fighting element of it, the competitive element. Become just well, everything about it really. Just uh, it just absolutely suited my personality. It suited what I've been looking for. I've done no sports whatsoever in life ever. Nothing. I never played football, cricket, nothing. But um, I just took to this immediately, and and so that's where it started really. And what year was that? Um, like nineteen sixty-eight, probably nineteen sixty-eight. So and I started going again to Bake Up Judo Club. I started going. Three nights a week, and straight away, a very competitive club, very competitive. There was only about seven or eight members, really. They were all down grades apart from one, who were brown belt. There were no low grades there at all. Uh, if they'd been to the judo club, they'd been stopped and bad. Too many had come back from the Second World War, which a lot of judo clubs had in England, actually. So you have to really stand up. You have to stand up and be counted. <laughs> you have to be stand up and count because it were hard sessions, very, very hard sessions. But it just, as I say, it just suited me. And what was the judo scene in England like at that time? Very different to what it is today. It was harder. As I say, a lot of the people who were, who were doing judo were sort of ex-servicemen, a lot of them, and it's attractive. There weren't that many juniors then. 
there were mainly seniors in clubs. There were very few juniors. Apart from, I don't know, yeah, there were juniors in our club. I couldn't even remember if there were any. I didn't see that night, not for a couple of years. And competitions that they had were pretty spaced out. They were mainly inter-club competitions more than organised national competitions. The only national competition was the British Championships and the Trials, which select from the Trials we selected the British squads. And national teams, I think they were the only three national events I can remember. All the rest of the events were sort of inter-club ones, where you just visited other clubs, which was regular. There were a lot more visiting of clubs them days than there is today. And I don't think they had as many recognised coaches such as a coach or in a club. If you went to a club, normally the highest downgrade just took the session. And that applied if you went to other clubs. If you went to other clubs and you were a second down, for example, and they were only first down on the map, then you automatically took that session. And every session sort of started with Neowazer. There were no warm-ups. That was the warm-up of the Neowazer. Which, things like that actually make me wonder today whether we spent far too much time on that sort of thing. There were lots of people who disagreed with that, of course. I can't remember many injuries. I really can't remember many injuries happening those days. People pulling the ligaments, et cetera, et cetera. You just got down on the ground, rolled about for a few minutes, maybe five minutes, ten minutes when you warm up, and then you were at it. And then it was, and then it was, it was, and then it was randori. That really, were not techniques done when you went to visit other clubs. And you have to randori all the time, both me and Lance Stanley. So it was far harder, I would say, far harder. The judo were harder. Everywhere you went, you had to stand up. And you soon got to find out if you didn't really want to fight. So you'd only go to clubs where you knew each other. We knew the clubs where you went to get a scrap, anyway. And didn't bother going to clubs that were just doing it, well, I suppose, fitness use, or whatever, really. And I don't say anything wrong with that. But it just worked for me. I'm only interested in competitive, not only interested, but mainly interested in competitive judo or zombie. And then our club's been the same. It's been the same in the 50, 51, 52 years I've been there. And so we used to clubs that look sort of similar where they wanted to fight. And it always started off, and always at the end of the club, of course, at the end of the session, sorry, when you went to, if you went by yourself as a downgrade to a club, at the end of the night, you had to do a line-up. It was compulsory. At every club that you went to, you had to do a line-up. That's everybody who owned them at that night. From yellow belts to downgrades. As you were really expected to win. You were really expected to win the vast majority of the matches anyway. And that was sort of at the end of every session. We just a line-up. In fact, we did it in his own club. We did line-ups in his own club. So we had to go out there at the end of the session and take a line-up just to get used to it. It made you mentally strong because you knew that would happen every single time you win. It's like going to a competition. It's not something that you can make up or pretend to do. It only works when it actually happens when you're there. Stood by yourself in the middle, and when you've got six or seven people who want to come and try and throw you, and probably the last one, the best one. So, as I said, there were spells. And also, I would say that the mats weren't a good quality. You think places where they did judo were some strange places, in cellars and in back of garages, and just odd places. They just got buildings it could get, and there'd be no showers, no toilets in all of them, and definitely no showers. And um, you'd all be changing. In the dojo, if we could call it that, the room that you're in, you know, changing rooms in most of them, not say a few of the London clubs, you know, they have facilities because of, because of the Buddha Choir, which was first club in Europe to open. Um, but most of the people that went to them sort of clubs 
weren't that competitive anyway. They were just going there for the for the sporting side of it, really. And um, just do some more physical. And what would you say would be the biggest differences now then in the way to maybe competitions or trainings performed, even at that higher level, compared to, say, when you were competing as an athlete? At the higher level, vastly different, vastly different. In Great Britain, I don't like working for other countries, but in Great Britain, you more or less, to get selected for a competition, right throughout the 60s, probably the 70s, you more or less have to be in London. You have to be down in London clubs in Budokwai, Renshidon, things like that. Uh, otherwise, you just didn't get selected. In fact, you didn't even hear about selections. Of course, there's no internet, no mobile phones, so you don't ever hear anything about word of mouth usually. And so somebody here that the team would be picked to fight, somebody's coming from Germany or Austria or France or so Scandinavia, they were quite strong in coming to England and going to other countries and, and they had quite good. Oh, you sound quite good heavyweights for some reason. So that made it look well stronger than I'm not now. But they always had really good heavyweights in Scandinavia. And they were popular countries from Scotland quite a lot. And we also I'd say it was a very close shop in a way. Yeah, a very close shop was the, the international scene. In fact, one of my coaches, Tony McConnell, he wanted to go out to a trials for the Olympic Games and he had to finish work early. He got on a scooter, no motorways then, and drove to London on his scooter overnight to fight in the trials, which were held in a judo club at the Burkwai. Um, he won the trials, come back up on his scooter to go to work the next day, and still get selected. They still get selected, they selected somebody from the Burkwai over him. So the system was pretty much rigged. Whereas now, it's so complicated to get selected you have to be a professor to understand the qualifications. In our country, it's like it must be it must be six pages long. The things you have to do and go to, and I don't know, the behaviour patterns, and it, it's just it's just incredible, really. They don't pick the best fighter; they pick the best person who fits their idea of a model judo player, which is there's no such thing as a model judo player. The best people in the world don't follow patterns. They make their own patterns. They make their own way. You'll see, like Neil Adams, for example, you know, he, he had such a fantastic Juju Gitama, and suddenly Juju Gitama were in for years, and that was the thing to do. And then Neil Eckersley won a bronze medal at the Olympics, and suddenly it, re- it resolved that. Neil Eckersley's all that. Neil Eckersley's all that. He was suddenly in passion for years, and still is, actually, as is, as is Adams, as obviously. There are various things like that. Various players come along with a particular throw. And suddenly that's the thing to be doing. Instead of just, really, you want to be the person that's developing them throws, not the one that's following them throws. You want to be developing some throws of your own. I think that's really the, what should be happening and what did happen in the past. And now we have to follow patterns. We have a pathway. Everybody has a pathway nowadays. So you start off as a kid doing these things that, that, that somebody who's writing these in a sat down in an office in London or wherever the National Centre is, Al Zim also. Writing a pattern out and they put all these fantastic slogans up and this is the way forward and this is the pathway to get to Olympic medal, et cetera, et cetera. We are in very much consideration about the actual person's coach. It's all about the national system and how that works. And I'd be going completely the wrong way around, completely the wrong way around in my opinion. It should start with a coach, not just be a, a sort of extra part that sticks stuck at end of it that occasionally you might get a telephone call to say what's happening. 
and what your players do when they go to these training camps or go abroad and you never see a video, you don't get reports about them or anything really. It's sort of like we've got two different worlds completely now. You also, the national training centres have sprung up where you have to go to, right from being a young boy, school really, or sort of finishing when you finish college. A lot of them don't go to very few go to university now they go, they have to go to the centre. Uh, and they'd be full-time centre, which is funded only for players that's there. If you don't go there, you have no funding at all in this country. You have to go to our full-time centre. I don't know whether that applies in other countries or not. And that's probably the biggest difference between then and now, is that you're taking away from the coach who's actually got you to the place in the first place. And I'm very, very little contact with him or input from him. From then on, it's sent down to national coaches they were normally appointed because they've done pretty well at judo or been in the right place at the right time. But they fit the criteria, criteria, this long criteria for everything that the, the national organisation seems to have nowadays. And so the people who've actually got them there very, very rarely even get through the door to see them, to help them, to watch them. It's, it's sort of a closed shop from there on. That did that years ago. They pick the people who won the trials. That's what the trials were for. That's why they call trials. You win trials, you went to European Championships. That were it. If you won European Championships, you go to World Championships. Or if you got, did well in European Championships, you go to World Championships. That was a pathway. It was a pathway of success. Not of filling the right forms in or being fitting the right criteria, being right, looking right weight or right size or fittest or passing all these psychological tests that they have now. Um, it the people who won, as it is in Japan, as it is in France and Germany. If you win, you go. We don't get opportunity in this country. Unless you go to a national training centre, you don't go. It's as simple as that, really, which is why well, we're in power country. Lots of talent's just not going now. They don't see a future. In training, as hard as you have to train to get to the Olympics or the World Championships, or even the Europeans now. The Europeans are hard matches. Very hard. Just to win a match there is hard. With, with all these ex-Eastern ex -Eastern Bloc countries, that's a, a huge difference as well between you, isn't it? There's only one Russia <laughs> in every match. There's one Russian there. Now you've got like 10 different countries, all with really good judo players. They're good experience wrestling or similar sambo, etc. They all have a good background of fighting sports to back their players up that's traditional in their countries. And now there's lots of them. Whereas years ago, there would have one Russian, one German. So it's a lot harder, a lot harder to get there now than it were years ago. Even if you have talent, it's still, it's not the be all and end all, not in the national associations as. Earlier on, you mentioned there was a, a mental toughness in the training. And I was just wondering how important do you think that is for an athlete? Well, I would think for any athlete, not just a judo player, I would think that mental toughness is absolutely necessary. Without it, you're not going to get to the top. And I'm in this conversation now, if, if you don't put some sort of context to it, judo is a sport for everybody. It's not just the competitors. I'm just, we're just talking about competitors now and people who want to get that. Let's just say, let's say the Olympic Games, for example, the World Championships. But, I mean, it's, it's a really great sport for everybody. It's physical, it's, it's you know, you don't have to be the strongest person anymore. You don't have to be fastest. You don't have to be biggest, smallest, whatever. It fits all. It's, it's a one-fits-all sport. There's no doubt about that. 
So I'm not going to knock any, I'm not trying to sort of knock anybody who doesn't compete. There's a place for everybody here. But I'm just talking about competition, competitive people now. So it's a quite narrow margin to talk about, really. And that's what you generally find in all in all sports, every sport, even in darts, even. <laughs> but that, that's passing the sport now. It's all snooker, but it is. They still have to have a mental toughness about them. Everybody has. Because when you're competing, and there's only you walking out on that map, no matter what you, what sort of training you've had or whoever's there with you, there's only you stood in the middle of that map at the end of the day, like a boxer, just like a boxer. There's only you stood in the middle at the end of the day. It's, it's one man to one man, and, or one woman to one woman, it's the same as you know. And unless you have that mental toughness where you can forget the crowd, you can forget all the pressure that's put on you because of what you've gone through to get there, and how much people have spent and how much you've spent and how you've spent your life and doing it and, and give up all the things that normal people do to train. All that has to be forgotten. You just have to be able to focus completely and absolutely on that, set, on that match because in that three, four, five minutes that you've got, you can't afford to lose concentration for one second. Because if you do, that's the second you get through. And that's the end of it. Like it is with a boxer. Lose his concentration for one second, bang, he's unconscious. Judo, bang, you're on your back, and that's the end of it. No matter how much you train. So you have to concentrate. That's where the absolute main focus is that one five-minute section of your life. That's all you have to think about. And it's not so easy to do with all the pressure that's, that, that's a week today. Everybody, the, the size of the teams that go out there, the doctors and the physios and the psychologists and the, <laughs> the constantly not the call up to get well people, mental who look look after your mental welfare, etc., etc. Like as all, you have, to, you have to have somebody with you when you're around all the time. So if we are all that and just get on with it, then that's that's not so common in people. It's not such an easy thing to do, which is normally why. World champions, Olympic champions, are special people. They have something about them. They just have a, an aura about them that, uh, that they're self-confident in themselves. So I think the mental toughness side of it is important. And I, and I would also say that going back to the question you asked earlier about what we're like when we started, the vast majority of people that did judo then, what we call working class. I don't really like that word, working class. Everybody who works as a working class person. But um, they were usually manual workers, that would be a better description. Manual workers, there were, there were nobody in offices, you didn't get many office people fighting in general. There were normally people who come from factories or like I did, that coal mine or builders. A lot of people who worked in docks, there were quite a lot of people in docks in Liverpool and places like that who went there. So they were very physical in the jobs as well, so they were naturally strong like farmers are. You know, you get a farmer anywhere in the world, and Special breed, aren't they? They have big hands. They have big hands. Every farm in the world has giant hands. They must have a place where they, where they produce them. And they're all enormously strong. It's because of the physical labour that they do from, from birth. So nowadays, of course, it's got to be done at gym because there's not that much physical work about now. And a lot of people, as I said, finish doing motor work. They go straight from school, straight into judo immediately. They don't have any physical work in their life. So they're going to be competing against people who come from, going back to East Eastern Bone countries like Georgia, people like that, you know, Mongolia. They're just tough people. They're brought up, still brought up as tough people. It's in, their, it's in their heritage. We've lost that in our country, I think, probably in Australia as well, and a few, quite a few European countries, but not in the Eastern Bloc countries. They still have it. They still have that same mentality. They still have that same physical 
strength, which is just, it's, I don't know. I don't know why you compete against that really. Well, you compete against it, might be better than them, obviously stronger or quicker or fitter. There's lots of ways to win a judo, isn't there? And I think that all them qualities, you need them all. You need to be quick, you need to be strong, you need to be, think, be able to think quick, really. You need to be alert to what's happening around you every single second. And sometimes the soft countries, they lose that. They lose it in the way the country is developed, the way the, the nation is, the way the work is, the way the, the attitude of the governments are when they're forcing you to all the walk people that's knocking about now. I think it's, it's going to gradually make our countries softer and softer. That's what I can say. Do you think that mental toughness can be trained into someone? Just like the other skills you mentioned, like speed and, you know, um, obviously like technical proficiency in the sport uh, do you think mental toughness can be a skill that can be taught or learnt mm, I don't think it can be taught I think it can be learnt maybe it can be well no I tell you what I think thinking about it I think it could be brought out to someone who has it but doesn't know they have it because they've never been put in a situation where they need to use it as I say because life is pretty soft in a way most kids sat down on bloody gaming machines etc etc all day and on the phones they're not tested for mental toughness anymore. In fact, it's a sign that they don't want in schools anymore. They don't want mental toughness. They want everyone to be the same, like a production line. Just do as they told. And mental toughness, so I think to get mental toughness, you have to face tough situations. Otherwise, you don't, you don't even know if you have it. And you have to face them regular. Hence, when they took away from, out in the environment as a young person to go to a national centre, not just in this country, other countries as well, or, um, and in other sports, if they get took away from the environment they're brought up in, and if, if they're brought up in with a tough environment that's made tough from by the coach and by the parents, and they just don't get everything they want and they have to fight for things in their life, not for food, etc., but to get where they want to go if they have ambition in sport, then you can fetch it out of them and you can see it in people. And I would say that I saw it in you, for example, and we've discussed this before. You know, when you first started, you didn't have that, you didn't appear to have that sort of mental toughness, which I put down to the club you went to, which was a soft club, if you will. It was a competitive place, but you wouldn't know that because you haven't seen anything else. And when you start to come to our club, which I've always considered a tough environment, then suddenly you blossomed. Bit of a late, <laughs> bit of a late blossomer. But you blossom, and suddenly there you were, one of the toughest guys in sport then in our country. And it still shows today. So I'm only I'm on using you as an example because it's a good example, really, that people who know you, that um, they want to recognise you as a, a 13, 14 year old, who like a different person, and that completely different to where you are now. So I've used that as an example. So it, it is there, there's lots of people who have it, but they don't know they have it because they're not tested to, to that degree. So again, going back, you have to have the right environment from the start. You have to have the right coach who's going to spot that and say, this boy's got some possibilities here. You know, he can, he can be better than he is, better than he thinks he is. But you have to put that, you have to put that toughness in his way. You have to put obstacles in his way that he has to fight through. That's a long, long process. It's not a five-minute job. It's a long process. It's um, years and years of it. And then suddenly, there you are, the man, they've got it. As I say, you don't know that until you actually test them. You have to be tested early on in the life with somebody who can actually, who's looking for it and see it and knows what to do about it and won't be soft with him. And this might come across as really like, oh, I've 
down to the really tough exaggeration. It's about that really. Mental toughness not about being tough physically. It's about being in a tangled situation where you put under pressure and can handle it and can think clearly and take it for what it is. It's and then once it's done, you can just put that to one side out of your life and that just comes in when you need it. You don't have to be that way throughout your life or throughout your family or anything. It's just in that specific environment that you need to be able to focus on it really. As most athletes do, when they're not doing that, you should really be able to relax in them. Not be the tough guy and the tough person, the tough girl. Tough, not that good word, is it really? It's just, uh, I'd say competitive, man. Probably tough, I think. I suppose from my point of view, the when I've looked back over when you know, I first started, like you say, a bake-up, and I was quite an emotional child. I didn't really know how to control those emotions. And it would like you know be overwhelming. And when I was met with a situation where I felt overwhelmed, you know, I'd inevitably cry. And I think that's sort of associated with being a bit soft. And then I think for me, I feel as though you give me the tools to manage those emotions. So not to like not to remove them or, you know, to sort of ignore them or anything like that. But in a way, like you say, by exposing me to the situations uh, in training and whether it's on the judo mat or like the physical outdoor activities we used to do. So give me the the tools to be able to manage those emotions and sort of channel them in a, in a more productive way rather than being in a sort of a, you know, an overwhelming and destructive kind of way. And I think that's how I feel as though what you say, that mental toughness, it's more just a better understanding of how to apply that energy. Yeah, I would say, yeah, you've got several descriptions really. We're talking about one word, but one word doesn't sort of encompass everything, does it? That mental toughness could be lots of different things, could be described lots of ways. And like you mentioned there, crying, etc. Well, you know, I cry a lot. I cry, still cry on television sometimes. You know what I mean? Crying is not a soft thing. It's not making it very soft as you cry. That's just emotion. Everybody has emotions, don't they? So it's, it's nothing wrong with showing that emotion to the world, really. It's, that's nothing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to have emotions. It's a good thing. Might have to be difficult without them, really. It won't be very interesting. So, as you say, it's like how to direct and how to control. It's a long job. I think that you have to, again, it's back to the person who, who you're dealing with, who has to provide the opportunities to let you see that. Now, you mentioned there the outdoor training, for example. This is, I think it's a really good example, and I'm, I'm big on this, as you know. That when you're doing something, we'll just go back to judo, really. But when you're doing something like judo, as it's so physical, there's so many aspects, so many aspects to it, to a fight. You know, it's not just a straight, simple thing. It's, just, it's a constantly evolving thing as a fight. Then I think you have to do something other than judo to help to strengthen that resolve, which is, for me, outdoor training. Let's just say, like, you could just say, like, SAS type of things, you know, if you're going to the extreme. But that, as you know, that's what we did. And we went to the extreme many times, some of the stuff we did. Um, and... That's I just to describe that for a second for the people who are listening. I mean, we did we did outdoor camps. And when I started doing very interesting coaching, and, and I started as the Air Northwest Area Team Manager for boys under 18s, um, I had a friend Tony McConnell who lived in the Lake District. He was a British ex-British coach, probably the British coach at the time, and probably in my opinion, one of the best coaches I've ever come across in the world by far. And that's a pretty popular opinion in people who know Tony. Um, I was very lucky meeting him. And he said to me, why don't you bring the team, we're coming for national team champions, why don't you bring the team up to Kendall, you can stop in the youth hostel and we'll do a bit of outdoor work with him. 
which I'd never done, never even thought about it. So I took the Northwest Area team that was going to go to the national championships I'd selected. We went up to Kendall for training weekend. Absolutely blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. Running in the running up in the fells, climbing, jumping into lakes, freezing cold, uh, working, doing what we call Barney rubble circuits with rocks, just using rocks as circuit training. Just lots of unusual things, carrying logs, pulling tires tied to your back, all things that are done now, but I've never seen before. And that was just the norm for Tony. That's how he trained. So that, again, massive changing point in my life. And I think in everybody's life, I've sort of coached since because I've done it. I've always carried on doing that. In fact, I'm doing it tomorrow night with kids on that. We're doing a little session on the, on the judo map from, from children from five, five to 15. With same thing, I've got some logs and some pieces of carpet we've tied on for making somebody can pull on like sledges. Lots of things, pots of water, plastic bottles full of water that they can use as weights because it's more difficult to use instead of a weight, it's going to be plots about. Those things like that, I think it's really important for judo players to do stuff like that, as I know that you've done, you've done it for years. And yourself and, and Mike Lawley and Danny Harper. They're all doing that sort of stuff now, so it's, it's, it's quite common now in the Northwest area. A lot of the people, let's say the Southern Softies, which they are, they look down on this sort of thing. Oh, my God. What's, what's going to go up there running in the hills and what's the point of jumping into waterfalls and carrying logs and lifting rocks, etc.? They thought it was, that's because they were lazy. They didn't like doing it. They didn't like getting on dirty. Whereas the people who were doing it loved it. Or they perhaps didn't love it, but they felt better after they'd done it. And, and it made them tougher, going back to this toughness, it made them tougher, they're mentally tougher, miles, miles more. You could see it. You know, some people will jump off into a lake off a rock at first, but then once they do it a few times, no problem. They just overcome in the fears. And it makes you realise you can do stuff that you didn't think you could do. So I think that outdoor training is really important in junior training and doing something that's just a little bit off the wall. It's not off the wall as I see it, but it's off the wall as other people see it. And you can think of it yourself as you're running along. You know, we did that thing, like the sheepdog trial, for example, where you got the tennis balls, if you remember that, you got the tennis balls, wrote the names on it. You didn't expect that type of thing. And then you're just running along and suddenly you stop the group and you throw these tennis balls into a field with all the names on and you have to go and find their own ball to spike. Within minutes, they develop their own way of doing it. So when they find somebody else's ball, they'll throw it far the right field and kicking it away and stamping it into the ground. Within seconds, that competitive element come out and your brother smash you into the fence when running back because you were just beating him just to get past you and he broke your neck. So that sort of thing is, is important. That team, when we come back just from doing that simple exercise, that's all people, that's what he talked about and still talk about it. They're the things that you remember, stuff like that. They are times and so when, when somebody fell and hurt themselves and just like they got up and carried on Blue blood coming out their head, perhaps, or something like that. It won't be allowed to happen. It won't, like, it won't be allowed to happen in an environment, a national squad training environment. That would not be allowed to happen, that sort of training. But I bet they're doing it in Mongolia. I bet the Slovenians are doing it. Well, all the Slovenians are doing it. And the, and the Syrians are but just It's just other countries look at it, view it a different way than we do. They, they'll find something that's hard to do. We seem to avoid stuff that's hard to do and just go for the judo, just completely go for the judo and, and don't think of any other alternative training methods. They look down on because they're not traditional. 
I don't know if I should have sold it. It's a tangent here, actually. I've no idea where I'm What you said there, so, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, there was definitely times oh, where I loved the outdoor stuff. But oh, there there oh, were times oh. where I was... Uh, oh, hang thinking... on. Stop, stop, stop. Stop but, after uh, I take a minute to get the this in. Oh, God. But, uh, I mean, I, I still talk to, you say, Michael then, and, you know, I talk to Danny Harper. You know, we still keep in touch, even on the other ends of the world. And every conversation we have, we, we inevitably talk about one of those outdoor activities where it was like running through the, the river in Kendall in the snow or, you know, like you say, doing the Barney Rubble or running with the logs. And in, inevitably we'll always speak about one of those stories and, you know, with with fondness and, you know, laugh about it. So definitely um, look back on it with fond memories. And, you know, and like you say, try and get a, pass the same thing on to our students now. Well, that's, that, that's the idea, isn't it, to pass it on? Sorry, go on. Carry on now. No, no, I was going to, because you mentioned, obviously, being Northwest squad coach, and then you were the Great Britain squad cadet coach for 15 years. Just want to ask you about that, and, you know, were there any players during that time that really stood out? Yeah, there were, actually. I mean, yeah, Craig Fallon was one, I mean, probably most famous. Craig Fallon, well, there's a 14-year-old boy, very shy and nervous, talented, so talented. I went on to win more championships in Cairo. Michael Neal, nobody will know, nobody will, not people who listen to people will know Michael Neal, but I think for me, probably one of the most talented players, certainly the top three that I've ever seen in my life. Badrick as well, Badrick from Wolves and Judo, but he was another one, just, just an absolute natural. And look how, how they slipped out of the system. Going back to this system thing, it, they were they just wasted talents. They were just fabulous Judo people. They were, we could have been world champions if we had a, maybe a different system, I think, first half, or maybe more money in the system, I think, probably as well. There could be a thousand reasons, actually. I could think of loads of reasons why some of the really talented players didn't get there. But certainly the system, as it, as it was and is, certainly this, it sort of put people off the fact that they had to leave their own coaches and go with somebody else they didn't particularly like or they didn't know they didn't think we were a good coach and put them in an environment they didn't want to be in. And so, consequently, they didn't even get on bottom ladder going anywhere, again on a trip, again selected. But going back to that squad, just to some background information on that, there, there wasn't any, when I was the Northwest Area Squad Manager, there wasn't a, a follow on from that. They started, the junior, the British team started at juniors under 21s. There were nobody. At, at uh, 13, 14, 15 and, and teenagers, there were no squad, national squad for them at all. And we had a boy at our club called Geoffrey Rushton who won the nationals. I was really disappointed with, I think it was first player for us to win nationals. Disappointed that there were nowhere for him to go, no, national, no international competition or anything like that, where there were international competitions being held, but Britain didn't have a team to take anybody. So I pestered the current England team manager at the time, as did Tony McConnell, my friend. We pestered him about doing something about it. And he agreed to do a trial run, and they were called the Espoir Squad, which is the French name for juniors. And they used to have one of those in the 60s that Tony McConnell ran. And then they scrapped it and he finished as squad manager. Again, like a foresight completely, why would you scrap a system that brings boys up from 60, 15 year old? It was of the national squads. Well, just grab that system. It just shows how short-sighted we were. So he did a trial run, 
with myself and, and Neil Adams, the joint managers. I don't like that work with a joint manager, coach, etc. The first place we went to was France. I went to France, yeah. Went to France, a team in France. We won that tournament. In that tournament was Graham Randall was in that third. Yeah, they were world champion. And, well, there were several, man. Not so good on names anymore. And, but there were some really good players who had come out as good coaches in that very first team that we took out. Where would that be, David? Penelope. I can't even remember what we started. 1989, I've got written down here, my notes. 89. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I know it's not as good as yours. Yeah, 89, yeah, you're right. So, from that success, luckily we had that success in that first tournament we went to, then it became a regular thing then, so they made it part of the pathway, which is still there now. I thought, at the time, it was a bit, I would say... A BGA's point of view, a British Judo Association, it were a little bit unprofessional from their point of view because they just left myself and Alan Shaffix and Trevor Sidlington and a team of coaches that we got around us to, to run it, really. And we, we more or less run it ourselves. It was a good thing for us, but um, well, in fact, it was a fantastic thing for us because we got to use our ideas, hence using the outdoor sessions, etc., etc., and we started it right away immediately. We had Neil Adams Ways as well, who were fantastic. I mean, you couldn't get a better person to, to, to be leading it. So we started doing training sessions once a month at Neil's club, and then we moved to Birmingham. We had them centralised. At that particular time, it was Great Britain. Now it's separate. It's England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, all have their own squads and their own systems. And they go to their own competitions, etc. It's done completely different now. But that then it was everybody. And we got over 100 players come to every monthly session. They flew down from Scotland, some of them come from Ireland, from Wales. They were fantastic. It was absolutely the best time that Britain's ever had for that age group, for under 18 age group. It was the best time they've ever had. We got all European medals, all medals at the Youth Olympics, the, the European Championships, the World European Youth. Just had a fantastic time. And um, that's slightly changed now because, as I say, this split up the system. Um, and every, each country goes back on their own now. And by doing that, they've obviously weakened the system for everybody. So now they don't have the same amount of players training and they don't have the same round door in. They all have different ideas of what to do. Uh, and this country as small as we are, it just baffles me, absolutely baffles me. Probably the most things around the British Judo, putting the, the sport up like that. We still have a, an England team, a, a national, sorry, we still have a British squad, but they, they don't meet as much, they don't have the same effort because they all got, they've all got their own coaches now in their own countries with their own squads. So we don't have that cohesion that we had before. Uh, and I don't think we're ever going to get it now. We're too small. We're too small with too many various different ideas of the way forward. But going back to them years, we had a fantastic time, um, and I got a lot of a lot of was success. We went on maybe six international trips every year, bus trips, which we organised ourselves, going to different to different countries in, in Europe. Very very successful. In fact, the trips were the backbone of the squad. That's what people wanted to do. And going back to you saying about the things you talked about when you talk about the, you know your times with with, with Danny and Michael, that. When I was talk to players that were competing then for Great Britain, they talk about the bus trips. 
what happened, not most of them, what happened in hotels and how they used to sneak out, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they don't talk about the journal. They talk about the experience of being there, not of the results that they had or didn't have, but the actual experience of, of being with other people, like-minded people, being away from home for the first time without the parents, et cetera. It's like a different world that they, they introduced to them. And that made them better individuals in the long run, made them more independent-minded. Again, they learned things that they think they couldn't do. They got used to firing their away on buses, planes, etc., to get to airport. And sometimes you'd meet them at a, in another country and they made their own way there. So all them sorts of things, when you lost, for example, as well, you lost together. You work by yourself, you were in a team. And creating that team ethos is absolutely crucial, as I'm sure you know, as everybody knows. If you don't have a team ethos, like it is in football, for example, it's evident that you can have the best players in the world, but if you don't play together, you still lose. You know, and they end up starting arguing amongst each other, etc. I think that was in lots of sports, team sports. And we at Judo is an individual sport, but it's also a team sport. And the team part of it is sometimes lost. Um, they concentrate on the individual quite a lot and not the team effort. You can't be a champion without a team around you of other players that you train with. It's just impossible. You've got to have the Randori. You just can't do it without it. And so hence when we split our country up into four into four sections, then we lose we lose all the Randori players. So it's you know I've seen five or six people fighting each other all the time. And meeting maybe once every few months to do a bit of Randori with somebody else. And some of the sessions, they spend more time on technique than they do on the randori. And the randori is the most important part you can do when you're in a group. Right, I shout about that. You go to Japan. I've been to Japan loads of times. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a new technique session unless it were one that were planned in another room. But on the main mat, if you just get on there, warm up, and they're away, away they go. It's randori. Their technique's done when they're kids and they're growing up. They do it at school and at universities, at colleges. That's where their techniques delivered, and they expected to be able to do all that sort of stuff when they get to, to big universities or get to the national training centres. So they just do randori, and it works. Look how it works for them, and that, that applies in lots of countries. Don't apply in our country. It's the opposite way around. No more time on technique and less time on randori for some reason. With coaches, they don't know. Is there anything else you want to talk about on the national squads? It were. Uh, so you mentioned Tony McConnell a few times uh, earlier on in the conversation, and I was just curious as to what the extent his influence has had on your coaching. Hmm. Well, probably not just influencing the coaching, probably influenced my whole of my life, actually, as he has done with many, many people. He, I would think he'd be one of the, not today, obviously, not many would be, because he died last year, and be 80, probably 81, 82 now, so, but if you could ask, coaches around the world what they thought of him I don't think we found a single one that didn't hold him in high esteem when I first met him well I'll start to say the people, some of the people's influences that's current today in coaching like Billy Cusack and Mark Irwin Luke Preston who produced, still producing Olympic players you know world players and there's lots of other people as well that, that, that sort of on the periphery of that they've had contact with him over the years and they've been They've been impressed with the way that, not just the coaches, but the way that he carries himself. He has a presence about him that inspires you. He inspires players, he inspires coaches. He's a strong man, a strong character. I could probably talk about him for hours, not talk about him, but the things that he's, he's imparted on 
other people and myself and other people that's been in contact with him through judo. He helped me in, we started in maybe 1980 um, when I first started with the North West he was the Northwest. He was the Northwest Area Men's Manager at the time. He'd just come from being the manager of Sweden, which he transformed the whole country there from a non-judo country into a country that were winning medals. So he, I got the job in 1980, and Tony said to me, "Why not take up the Kendall, the team, instead of training them as was normal at judo courses on the weekend?" So I went for a weekend up there. And just the way that we did things we'd never done before, just examples were like sort of fell running, you know, the fells. And the reason for doing stuff like that, there's a reasoning behind everything he did. It was, it's for balance, isn't it? And you're constantly looking, without realising it, but you're constantly looking where you're putting your feet. So that running, you have to think about that type of running as opposed to running the track where you can just put the lap after lap after lap, you can think about anything. But when you're running on rough ground, you have to concentrate all the time you're doing it, and it could be for maybe a couple of hours. And so then we did that jumping in lakes, carrying logs, pulling tyres, climbing, rock climbing, all real, what they would call character building stuff. And people sometimes mock that, but you see, that, it does work that way, don't it? If you look at like, the SAS in all the countries, the different SAS type of groups, and the Marines and commandos and SEALs in America, they, that's a, they're still doing that sort of training. They're still doing it. And it's becoming quite popular now <laughs> with personal trainers, etc. Nobody did it them days. Nobody. It was unheard of. Bree did it. And it's something, it transformed your way of thinking. Let's, let's not think just about doing technique or doing certain things in the gym. Let's think about getting them outside into a different environment type of thing. And it builds up a terrific team spirit. And it's a team spirit that we're good at doing. Without the team ethos, it's really difficult to progress. And you've got to build a team slowly. You can't just go to meet a team of people. You're like, if you're a team manager and these lads turn up on a weekend and you don't know them, it's very difficult to make that into a team. So you've got to do these sorts of activities where they're out of the comfort zone and they all have to work together. They won't be the best thrower. They won't be the best neo-lazer They won't be the best runner. Be, somebody will be able to beat them at something. So it draws you all together a lot easier than just having going on judo math the same person throwing everybody, which to me seems a bit pointless. It doesn't help the person who's throwing them, it doesn't help the people who are being thrown. So to throw something else of a training, something in a training mix where they can't do that and you can beat them, it brings it, it equalizes things out. So everybody gets a, a bite of the cherry. Now you've got to earn respect as well. And the things I used to do were, it used to impress on me, always be first to do it. So if you're out on a run, for example, and you're going past the river or a lake and something, you'd be the one to jump in first. Don't even tell them. In fact, he never used to tell us anything. And I've picked that up off him. I don't tell people what they're going to do. I don't do programs. I don't want to say a point in giving somebody a program for a weekend training session so they know everything that's going to happen in front of them. And then you can see him talking and saying, I don't like doing this. Oh, God, we're doing that again. We're doing this again. Don't tell them what's happening. Just bring it to them as a surprise. Nobody's going to tell you how much what's going to happen to you. Nobody's going to come out and say, I'm going to throw you, which you have, I'm going to throw you, whatever. You've got to be ready to take things on the run. So I've always adopted that attitude myself that I don't tell people much what I'm doing. Sometimes, or even the coaches I'm working with, I want it to come as a surprise and see how they react to each situation that you put them into. And then you've got to be 
sort of look like the invincible tool really if you can, especially with young people. You've got to do what you say, what you're asking them to do. You have to do it first. And if you can't do it first, you have to have somebody there who can, another coach who can do it first. And then they do it right away. Looking at something is far better than talking about something. It's far better than looking on a video. If you can see somebody do it right live, do it well. So he used to, he was good at picking people out and doing that, using the right people and building a team, building a team up. In a judo sense now, and I would imagine it works in any sport, actually, but in a judo sense, we're picking the right people to come as your support coaches. Now, every team seems to have loads of people there which don't actually know anything about judo, like the well-being and nutrition and physiotherapists and people like that. We've got a massive team away with you. But for judo, when you're training on a weekend, you need people there who know about judo. This is my view, of course, and it was talking to you. You know, you never had a physiotherapist, ever, never. And I never brought a physiotherapist in when I was a team manager, even with the GB team. Because as soon as a physio appears, everybody knows, that's it. <laughs> They'll have a queue, like it's a sailor's hazard. There'll just be loads of people immediately, as soon as you see them wanting taping up and a bad back and a bad neck. So don't give them the opportunity. If they're injured, they should be there. That was his opinion, that's my opinion. If they're injured, don't go, it's pointless. Because you're just spoiling it for somebody else. So when you start looking at it from that point of view, it makes it easier to pull a team together. You want like-minded people who just want to get on with making people, not making people, but encouraging people to work hard. Because if you don't work hard, you don't get anywhere. It's, it's, a, it's a fact in life. You, you have to learn to work. And the way that people are educated today, I'm saying the way, it's probably not the right way of saying that, but the length of time in education now, they're coming out of education in the 20s. So they haven't really had any hard life. They've just, they've just done education, really, and judo on the sideline. So consequently, they don't really know a lot about hard work. Whereas in lots of other countries, they start that because young people, they, they have a harder regime than we do in, I would say, softer European countries. and totally recognise that right away. He meant everything that he did were physically hard and mentally hard. And I, I've tried to do exactly the same thing. An example would be the farming hunt. We started going doing in the 80s, early 80s. We started going in winter times between Christmas and New Year. We went to a climbing hunt up in the Lake District, at the bottom of Helvella, which is the highest, highest mountain in England. And we travelled up there and spent three days there, as I say, between Christmas and New Year, which is normally a holiday for most people. But this was, them days, the trials were in January. So this was preparation for the trial in January, when other people would be on, on holiday. And that was that was the key, the, the key to the whole thing, really, to make people do things when other people were not doing things, just to get that little bit extra out of them. So psychologically, we were better prepared. That, were, that was one of the psychological keys, if you will. You've been the, you've done the more training than anybody else during this period, so that's the motivation right away. And um, so we started doing these camps, and we started off in the morning at five o'clock, out to bed, walk up our valley, run back down again, just in training gear. No matter what the weather was like, it was a hard slog, maybe two and a half hours, and you would be running down, and the walkers were coming up with all the gear on, the walking sticks and all the rest of the stuff they carry today. We'd be running down in shorts and, and t-shirts, etc. 
and they'd be, they'd be calling us, we'd be calling, calling coaches' names for allowing the boys to do it. But that became the norm. It didn't become, it didn't become an epic. It just became the norm. Right? You went there, you knew you were going to be running, running up and down Hill Belling, maybe twice out of three days. That's just the start of your day. So that camp is still going today, over 40 odd years on, in a different format. But that winter camp is still called a winter camp and it's still being run today in Kendall, where people come for a Christmas period and do three or four days training prior to starting the year. So it shows how successful that were. And there's not many people do well, anybody that does that, apart from Tony and Kendall, that do them sort of camps in, in our country. And as a, so overall, he's had a great, a great, um, a great influence on me. And I try to use my life in the same way to be fair to people, be honest about things, and you want to be loyal. Loyalty means a lot. If you're loyal to the people who's around you, they'll be loyal to you. You know, no backstabbing and no. If you've got something to say, say it, and let's get out in the open and then get on with the job. And they have a great way of motivating people by using things like. Clubs, you know, our clubs, our clubs better than this club. When you're going to it, you have a good talking man. You know, we have to go over there now, and as soon as we get through that door, we're going to smash it straight away. Suspected spam, get about 20 a day. And then uh, if you want to exactly that, the, the England Scotland thing, that rolls a big deal. Still is a big deal, obviously. You know what I mean? Uh, it's uh, so you use them sort of things as motivation when you're going up somewhere. Uh, you know, never been beat by Scotland or Germany used to bomb my granddad's chip and he was going to join the match in Germany, all that type of thing. That's just, it's used as a joke, but when you're in intense atmosphere in the back of a van travelling to a match, it does become a joke and it becomes a, a motivational point and it's just the way you put it over to them. I mean, this is obviously small examples. Um, because you travel together in a van and going in the van's fantastic. Going on a bus is fantastic, which very few people do nowadays. They fly everywhere. And they meet a new meet in the country. They won't they won't even meet at the same airport sometimes. You know, that's not a team. That's not that's not a way to, to produce a team ethic. You've got to travel together, you've got to eat together, you've got to train together, you've got to warm up together. You know, it's like you're in your own little bubble, really. And that's what you want to be. You see the tennis players today, they have a team round them, don't you? Think well, the tennis player needs six people start watching it. But they've built that bubble around them. And Djokovic has a, a little team around him and look at look at him how he how focused he can be on what he does. So probably probably go right to my remit here really. But um that's the sort of influence he's had on me and on other coaches and on other people that he's met that still talk fondly about him and best times of all happened were trained up at Lake District because he were taking him out of the out of the comfort zones all the time and he'd given him a reason explaining why we were doing it. What benefits you got out of it? It wasn't just to be fitter. It was to be a better person, a better person at whatever you're going to do in life. And I think that, that oh, well, sorry, there was, there was another thing as well that were, were important that seems to be lost a little bit in today's society. Uh, the fact that they have, they have certain rules that you have to follow. And I got, when I was team manager, I got a lot of stick over stuff like this. You know, when I took over the, the boys' team, you know, I brought the rules in like we were like to wear baseball caps, for example. Especially backwards, um, when they come into when they walk into the door, you can put around in the pockets at any point during the training methods. Otherwise, you have consequences. You have to the press ups and you have to be late on mat. If you're late on mat, you just send them off. That's it. Right? You miss this session, off you go. Unless you have an absolute cast iron excuse. Now today, they walk on mat when they walk off, they walk off. 
tape up when they have mapped the old tape up. Even though it's in, it's written down for every training session, there's always somebody in this country and other countries that start taping up when you start writing and already started. Um, that's because there's no consequences. If there were consequences, if, if they'd been sent off once or sent, gone away and said, right, good afternoon, so you missing this one, it won't happen again. It just won't happen again. But people say that's too harsh. You can't do that sort of thing nowadays. You can't tell people what to do nowadays. That's rubbish. That's absolutely. How are they going to learn? How are they going to learn to follow instructions? How are they going to, how are they going to hold the coach in an AST if they don't take any notice of what he says? There's no point in being sat in a chair. If, if, if the player doesn't respect you, I just won't listen to you. <laughs> it matters well not, will they? In fact, you might, not, you might as well not be to competition with you if they don't listen to what you're going to say. So that has to be built up over a period. You can't just make somebody at the airport they've never seen before sit in a chair and expect a coaching, which is what happens in a lot of places. It's impossible. In fact, it's ridiculous when you think about it. You've got to know somebody if you're going to coach them. You've got to know somebody if you're going to motivate they have to know you and you have to know that you're telling them the truth, that what you think is that that's what can happen. You've got to convince them of that. And you're not going to do that unless you've set up some sort of background with them, really. And having rules like that, I still see people, I still see boys that I coached on the national squad 30 years ago and I'm bumping them today and I visibly see them get their hands out of the pockets when they see me coming towards them. So you just do it. It's an automatic reaction. And if I said that, it sounds like it's, I'm saying, oh, I'm going to lie, they frightened me something. It's not nothing to do with that. Absolutely not doing it. It's the fact that we built a relationship up where if they follow the rules, I'd do anything for them, as, as, as a coach should do, really. If they played their part, I'd play my part. And that takes a long, long while to build up. And you have to be very, very honest with each other about it. You can't be halfway with it. You've got to be in or out. And I think that, that sort of thing is hard to do today. Hard, well, harder to do today because of the social rules that people sort of have in place nowadays and all the walkness that's in the world. So coaches, young coaches today, have got an harder time to build that type of thing up, I think, to build that sort of relationship up that, that I think that, um, that certainly our area has with our boys and we have in GB for the squad that we had at the time. And that really comes down to Tommy at the end of the day for me. It comes down to his influence on me, the way that he run things. I tried to copy it and then put my own twist to it. So there's lots of other things I could talk about Tommy for, but uh, there's not really time for it, mate. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I've just talked about some of those. I don't know going back into just what we thought about, actually. Well, one of the things he did do, uh, this was Tony again, sorry, again, learnt me a lesson of what how to do things, is even though I was very, very good at what he did. He brought people in, experts in the field, like running a running coach, for example. They weren't a running coach. They were actually a fellow runner that he brought up to the club on a regular basis for quite a while until they all got the idea of it. And they showed him that they had proper fellow running. And then he brought a sprinter up and they showed him how to do proper sprinting. Uh, just for a short period, maybe two or, three, two or three sessions. You know, so the boys suddenly went into being quite good sprinters and they went into being, being really good fellow runners. Took us to a box into a British boxing coach. Just again, took us out of us, took everybody, including myself, because I had to get in as well about that tanking. We had to get in with boxers just to show a different side of your mental toughness and your physicalness. But the boxing coach there were really good, really good. It was it were very interesting. So he did things like that as well, getting people in 
the weight coaches, even though even though I've done weight songs like I still brought some people in just to show certain things, some little things that that we haven't thought about or small points for like you do with me teaching judo really, you know, it's small points that matter. It's a fine detail that matters really. Everybody can do judge with Sammy, but they don't always get it a match, but you ask me how to do it, probably out of mind. It makes you cry with pain. You have to know that to, to really do it properly. And you used to bring people in who could do things like that. And then they'd move on and he'd have that knowledge. And I'd have that knowledge. And the boys would have that knowledge. So it spreads out, it spread out like that. So it weren't just a, on his own all the time. He did use other people, he used other people quite a lot, actually, when I think about it. But they were always experts in the field. They weren't talkers, they were doers. They weren't actually national coaches or anything like that. They were just boys who'd done the sport for a long while and knew what they were doing. One of the things that impressed me with the way Tony worked was the first time I worked with him, it was just prior to the National Team Championships. It was the first one for me with the North Australia team. And I had no experience of uh, doing the National Team Championships at all. So following the, the weeks in Kendall, the weekends in Kendall, he said to me, oh, get the team kitted out with tracksuits, including the reserves, get the area to pay for them, so they feel like they're getting something out of this. So the area agreed, we bought, I think we're letting in a team, we bought 22 tracksuits, plus two for the coaches, and we've got good tracksuits, we didn't buy crappy ones, we've got good tracksuits. And then he said, the team, the, the team event will be held in the Northwest area, which is our area. And it would be now in St. Helens, which a lot of the team could actually live near or, or actually in St. Helens. And they said, put them in an hotel for the night before, get them together, take them for a meal if they can have a meal. They just take them out at night, then go to the hotel together, get the track suits on. Everybody walks into the place together and wait, don't go early. Just come in, wait till a few teams are there, and then walk in together. Don't talk to anybody, walk straight past them. Just go straight in, straight to changing rooms, get changed onto the map, warming up, everybody, without talking to anybody. And that's a lot of parents, a lot of parents complaining, saying, why are you doing that? We've got to do this way from then you. I said, I don't care. If you want to be a team, that's what they have to do. They have to come together, they have to travel together. They don't want any parents there. Just, just the coaches and the boys. Don't talk to them in the morning, etc., etc. And we did exactly what he said, and we won it. We won the national team championships for the very first time, and won it quite easily. Now, the team we fought had eight. They were lending the team. They had eight national gold medalists from two months before, and we beaten easily. And that again just opened my eyes to what the team ethos does, and I've continued that sort of thing ever since. And I could just take that a step farther. When Tony was the manager of Sweden, he had a, a team competition in the Northwest area, and he did exactly the same thing. The Swedish team come in, walked into the venue, they all had suits on, same suits, really smart looking lads, really smart suits, collar and tie on, marched them into the venue, straight through across the front of the hall, where all spectators sat, to the changing room, changed back on. Doing a warm up. The Northwest area team were defeated before the normal. They were looking at them, you know, thinking, what's going on here? We've never seen anything like that before. So it was a measured response to doing to these things. They thought about this and thought, how can we impress before we even step on the map? How do we impress them? 
and make people feel inferior. And that worked. It worked an absolute treat. And again, just going back to how we influence me, <laughs> I learned that lesson right away. And that's what we tried to do. In every session, we went away with the British squad, put some people in charge, a man called Ramsey, who were an ex-paratrooper, and one or two other people that had been in positions of authority, if you will, in the, in the forces. And they just, we would just walk the players in tracksuits, no messing about, no sitting about in stands, no, no walking about talking to people, straight in the venue, into the changing room, onto the mat, warm-ups, hard warm-ups, not messing about warm-ups, not some people standing about by themselves, but the whole team on them together. You could see the crowd were looking at them, were looking at them all the time. Thinking, God, this, 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 it looked impressive. And I used to sit back then and watch. And the crowd, just watching the reaction of players in the crowd, you could see them all looking at them and thinking, yeah, who's these fellas? That sort of thing makes a difference. That was a really big point in our alert of talk. And as I say, I tried to continue that throughout my, my uh, team managing career. I think it's a good thing to think about is how you approach your entry into a tournament. You know, don't be casual about it. Have a plan. Have a plan and do it properly. You know, you've had your plan, what you've had your plan getting up to it, doing all these training sessions. Have a plan, even getting to the venue and how they behave and where they go, when they go, when they get in there. And when do they warm up? It's got the warm up's planned, everything's planned. So that they don't, nobody has to worry, nobody has to think about what's going to happen on the map. They just have to do what you tell them to do before they get on the map. They should be able to do that themselves once they're on there. There we go. I was just going to ask about where you're, because um, obviously you travelled a lot and you mentioned a lot of different places there. Where's been your favourite place to go or maybe a favourite trip? Hmm, not a difficult one. I, yeah, I'd have to split that into sections really. The most interesting would be China. When we went to China. I'll come to that in a second. The best place for judo would be Japan. The most surprising place was Azerbaijan, Baku, which is used quite regularly now in Europe as a sports centre for other sports as well. They obviously put an awful money into it. When you think Azerbaijan, it's a big country, that. Absolutely fabulous. The people were wonderful, absolutely. I was amazed, absolutely amazed. I went there for a youth, uh, youth Olympics. I weren't looking forward to the country at war at the time. Still is at war, I think. But it's only a small country. And when we rung up the... The home office to see if it was a safe place to go. They said, Yeah, they said, it's a, it is. There's a war going on at the moment, but it's in the north. So you'd be okay going to Baku. So we sent a man over called Trevor Sedlington, one of, one of the team members that we could afford to lose. And uh, when he came back, he said that it's, it's a, the wall was it said it was the size of Scotland. It was like being in Scotland from England with a wall, but they thought that was okay, it was safe to go over there. And as it happened, it were, and it still is. It's just a fabulous place. Uh, very, very traditional. People were really nice. Go back to, to China. China were amazing, just amazing. The culture there. You have to go to a country to understand what it's like. Uh, it's not like watching on TV or reading about it or watching a documentary. You have to feel what it's like when you're in there. China is exactly what I expected it to be, really, in a way, that everybody follows instructions, as they do in Japan. Everybody follows instructions. They're frightened of the national, let's say, whoever's in charge of the country, the governing body. They all have back of the mind whatever they say and do when they're talking to, especially when they're talking to foreigners. They, you've got to have a translator with you all the time. It has to do with you wherever you go. This would be what this means. 25 years ago, 
We took 22 players, took 22 players, myself and Tony, uh, and the old coach. And they were a return trip. They'd been to a training camp in Kendall in the Lake District with Tony. And they, they give us a, they paid for everything. When we got to the country, they paid for everything for the hotels. We had to pay for the flights only. All the food and everything else was provided by the Chinese because we'd done that for their, their team in England in the Lake District. So I took 22 players, young players, all under 20, all under 21, I think, maybe under 23 anyway. Yeah, under 23. We took them, uh, the bus put on for the coach, put on for us for the whole trip. And then an interpreter we as a driver who, who used to have to broke down with the bus all the time. But the engine were outside the driver, so it just used to lift the lid up, mess about inside, bang a bit, and then it seemed to go again. But the hotel were nice. They had a nice hotel for us, and the training facilities were fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. They were a women's team that were training with at first. Their national, their national team. And there was about 40 players, 40 women there, 40 girls, all selected from the various regions. They were all regional championships throughout China. And they go there, and that must be a fantastic life for them because we've got like two in the room, we've got televisions in the room, some of them, most of them have never seen. Not most of them, but certainly some of them. Good food, yeah, but the training, the training was hard. The coaches they had were cruel. They were really cruel, I thought. I'll give you one instance. That, uh, a girl with uh, a girl called Sophie Cox, who worked from our club, she were training with a girl who got a silver medal in Olympic Games or World Championships, I'm not sure which time. And they were doing a particular move. But the girl was struggling with actually, which surprised me. It wasn't like a could roll with Jujiki Tapia and something like that. And she was just like sort of struggling with it. And I'm just explaining to her just a couple of small pieces she was missing. And the coach come along, her coach apparently, picked her head up, but pulled it and spiked her across the face. <laughs> What's going on here? And after several discussions about it with the other coaches who thought it was quite normal, that they had to leave. And so we said, we're well, going home ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめんなさい。ごめん
just sit on the seat. It's at the lounge, so it's, she sat on the seat, sort of squatted, squat down. It was a fantastic thing. And then she'd let go, and it could go back and bounce on the springs, and she just repeated with that, for example. And that were, and then he looked for different things for different players to help him with a particular technique. He had a big heavyweight there, so World Championships, I think she was called Zoo. Well, certainly, the Rupert were called Zoo, if it weren't her, they were also world champion. And she was like six foot seven. Giant giant hands, massive hands, huge hands, like a farmer. <laughs> so for her, they got a bench, and they, they were like a, a joiner's bench as we as we have them here, where you have a groove in the mid down the middle. And in between Randori practices, because she, she well, could well get Randori practices for her. They had a, a big fat lad who, who just stood there waiting to be thrown by her, and that's what that was his job. It, it, it was probably about 160, 170 kilos. She just constantly threw so it was lashed him up and down mad. And then in between the Randoris, she went into the back room, she had a big dumbbell, a kettlebell, a big kettlebell. It must have weighed, I don't know, 40 kilos, I said it were. She just pushed that up and down constantly with one hand down this groove on the bench. And then she, next time she went to the other hand, just for strength. It was just, just, just for her, the only her did it. They had that sort of mentality where they just do what they were told and just do it repeatedly. They had to work really hard. There were no no resting and no like, drinking water. It was just really hard sessions to work. But the place were fascinating. They took us to the Great Wall of China, which is without this shadow of a doubt, the finest thing I've ever seen in my life. Send shadows, it sends, sorry, it sends my hair stand there when I saw it. The way, when you see it, I see pictures of it. Of course, everybody's seen pictures of it, but to see it, going up and down hills in a straight line with no deviation over some of them. Just incredible, absolutely incredible. And it was perfect condition. Absolutely perfect condition. They were fantastic, fantastic. They really looked after us over there. They really looked after us. But I did, the training were crew. They were definitely crew. And Sophie Cox met, of course, like the players always do, they always got to meet big roles. I don't know what else I can tell you. <laughs> I'll forget it. Every night, these, these girls, they have a dance hall. They have their, their own dance hall, if you will. It was like, um, like a little theatre. Um, they played music in there. They karaoke. They karaoke, mad like, jumps on. They were doing uh, singing, you know, horrible, terrible singers, obviously, terrible singers. And they kept insisting that we did a part of the karaoke, but they had no records, they had no yeah. So they, they said, Tony McConnell was a bad singer, actually played in a band at one time. So they said, we'll send out the records, we'll go and get some, some music for you to do. I weren't looking forward to it because I'm a terrible singer. And they come that night, that we've got a record piece to sing for me and Tony to sing. as we were like lead coaches. And <laughs> And they got up to sing this song, and they come on. Danny Boy, the Irish song, obviously. And the third one could more of an inappropriate song I've never heard in my life, really, to, to sing in China. The times people who didn't understand what you were singing anyway. So we did that. And then when they finished, they come and give you a, bu- a bunch of plastic flowers. So they give you a, bu- a bunch of plastic flowers. You sit down in your chair, next thing that goes on. When they finished, they come and take the flowers off you and give it to them. It was just one bunch of flowers. They passed it around to everybody. <laughs> and everybody claps you. Really strange. And all the girls that were there, all the, all the girls who trained, who looked like ferocious animals during the day, they were all dressed in like, they all had like little skirts on and white gloves, little white delicate gloves that women used to wear in England <laughs> in the 20s and 30s when they were having the tea, when they were having outside tea. It was really strange, it was really a contradictory, like a contradictory experience. You got, kept getting surprised all the time with what they did. And that's they thought that were really nice. That's how people were in England when they were dancing. I got sidetracked then going back over. I just remembered it. 
it was, it was a funny experience. Anyway, so the end of that, Soapy Cox saw some of these girls. They've become quite friendly with a few of them. I saw some at uh, the University of World Championship, World University Championships. And she was talking to, to this girl and she met who had a bit of English. And she said, they'd all gone. They didn't win anything at Worlds. And they'd gone, all of them. And 40 more girls the year after. She said, they'd just get rid of them. That's how they did it. If you don't success, if you're not successful in the first year or two, you're gone. Everybody. And 40 more there. Now, we have a country that can do that, don't they? But they're not very successful, are they? Chinese think with the amount of people that, particularly girls, and because girls tend to, in them sort of countries, it tends to be a way out of them to get out the system because they're tied in a, such a, a poor system for women. You'd think, well, they were, they were very, very aggressive. They were very, very fierce and you know, committed, but they didn't win anything and they were gone. And that's probably because they were gone. They didn't keep anybody. So there's no continuation. There was no continuation there. And I thought, this is why China aren't doing very well at Jugo, really. And probably because you can't use the drugs like that, like that, like that you're doing swimming. It were a contradictory country. And I think they could be really good with the women. Not so sure about the men, but certainly with the women. And they don't have that success because they don't have that continuity. continuity. They just get rid of them too quick. And it's a long haul with Jugo, isn't it? It's a long haul. You have to start young, mainly start young. Very few start in the 20s and do well, very, very few. So I think that system, that were an interesting country for that. It, uh, and Japan's interesting. Obviously, Japan's fantastic, which is not so bad for Australians to go to. It's not our far, is it? Well, as you know, we've been there ourselves. I've been several times there. And the judo's just magnificent to watch. It's just everything so easy. It's so, everything like everything's so easy looking when they're doing the Uchi matters and all the, all the really big throws. They just make it look so easy. And they obviously do it from being four or five years old. And the training pattern's different, isn't it? Because the randoris for them aren't like the offerors in Europe. They're not fights, they're randoris. Whereas we turn them into fights. Uh, they don't mind if they get thrown. They don't mind if they get thrown by somebody who's not as good. Well, nowhere near as good as them. They just play the game. So consequently, they get lots of throwing done with each other. When we're in Andorra, very few people get thrown because they don't want to be thrown. They don't want to get. They don't want to be thrown. And it's, it's not. We don't have the right attitude for it. I was bad. I was bad. I was bad when I'm doing it. Or when I were doing it, I didn't like being thrown. It was a fight. Whereas the Japanese have a different mentality. They like each other throw each other because they're looking at the grace, the gracefulness of it, and it's just part of the spirit that they have. And they're just, they're just fantastic judo players. I don't think we can. I don't think anybody can catch them. You know. Is, uh, I can't see any country in the world dominating it like they do. Anywhere near dominating it like they do. That's me done on that subject, David. <laughs> well, um... got, got too many, there's actually too many stories to tell about different countries that bore, bore, bore your listeners to death. Yeah, no, that was, that was, no, no, it's great. I think I react better to questions rather than thinking about things to say because I've been in judo a long time, as you know, and I've done a lot of teamwork, probably. I don't know, probably 30 years, probably 30 years of, of working with teams, which I quite like. And, you know, I treat the judo club like a team. Everything's a team to me. Because without the team, you've got nothing. Individuals, you, you can't be. An, it's an individual sport. That was an individual sport, which needs a team effort. So you can't be one man that gets to world championships or whatever by yourself. You have to have a lot of that, that door partners, as everybody has to get some out of that session. 
So this is a little bit where we're lacking our country. That we don't have mass randori sessions. We don't have massive amounts of judoka that, that do randori nowadays. I love the clubs I've been in. I mean, I think in our area, our particular area, northwest area, we have 62 clubs, I think. And I probably out of that 62 clubs will have six clubs that actually compete, which is ridiculous, really. And it's a competitive sport in a way. Well, it is to me. It is to me. And I suspect that's the same all over the country. It's always the same. It's the same clubs that continually win medals at competitions, etc. And I know there's another side to judo. Obviously, there's, a, there's a social side. You know, there's clubs that never don't want to go to competitions. They don't want to do the gradings. They just want to do judo, which is fine, absolutely fine. But that's not for me, personally. I think you have to be, I think you have to have a, uh, what can I say, like a focus or what I want to produce winners. I want to produce winners. And even if you don't win, I want to produce people who want to be winners, who try to be winners, who want to get the best, very best out of themselves. And I think parents want that as well. Parents want to see somebody doing that with them. You know, instead of as I said, going back to the school rules, going to back to rules again, the schools and the limitations that they have in schools now and colleges is massive, massive. So you know, people can't say anything to anybody that might offend them. But when you're in the judo team, you can say things that offend them. You're not offending them. You're telling them what's wrong. You're telling them what they're doing wrong, and, and how you should live your life right. And if you don't like it, you can say, "Well, off you go. Don't come to the judo club anymore." It's simple, really. So you do end up with a like-minded a like -minded, uh, group of people around you. So it makes your life more enjoyable. We want to get one life here. We want to be on the And if you might as well enjoy it. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, it's pointless doing it. So you've got to get, you've got to do things that you think are going to make things better. And there's no point trying to say, well, I can't do that because I'm not defending me. I'm not upset if I tell him that he's useless at doing Jukitam or Hoochie Matter or whatever. Well, it is useless, so don't do it. Find something else you can do. Let's, let's work on something else. And if you get upset about it, well, it's tough. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> again, I could talk about stuff like this all the time because it's, it's so annoying in my eyes, but that's not going to change now. Society's changing. But it's not changing in some countries. It's not changing in Mongolia. It's not changing in Russia. It's not changing in Japan. It's not changing in a lot of countries. But mainly the softer ones, like we are. I don't know Australia is like, obviously. But, uh, but certainly countries in Europe are going down that route, apart from the uh, ex-Russian, ex-East German countries. <laughs> they seem to be sticking to it. They seem to be sticking to what they were doing before, which is why they're so hard to beat, why they're so strong and so strong mentally. I'm done with that one now, David. Now spot on, Brian. No, I'll probably leave it there, Brian. No, really, really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your, uh, your knowledge and stories with us. Obviously, you've been my coach for like 24 years now, so I've experienced it firsthand. And, you know, I'm the player and the coach I am today because of you. Well, that's nice to be. So, cheers. Thank you.